Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by two times Ironman world champion Chris McCormack, one of those guys who everyone knows by his nickname Macca. I was thinking earlier, how do I introduce Macca? He's literally done it all and we don't have an hour to list all of the races he's won. I think Macca was ahead of his time in triathlon. He was a world champion, but he was more than that. He was a showman. He was always in the thick of it, whether it be on race day, in the build-up to a race, or just about any day of the year. One of those guys who was bigger than the sport. From the outside looking in, you could tell Macca knew how to hurt. He gave it to himself when it mattered. On next week's episode, I'm talking to Craig Alexander, one of Macca's greatest rivals, and I honestly can't wait to ask him, what was it like racing a guy in Macca that you knew wouldn't quit no matter how hard things got? Macca, thanks so much for joining us, mate. How's everything going? Oh, too easy. Nice intro, mate. All right. It's from a life ago, but yeah, cheers. Hey, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's just go straight back to that period in your life. Um, off the top of your head, can you remember the block of training you had that was just the best in your career? Um, yeah, without question. I think the, well, the, you always remember the first block of training where you feel you nailed it. I, I was very lucky when I stumbled into the professional elements of the sport. I, I just went away. I was quite raw in, in 1995 and I had a great season and, and won a couple of World Cups and came back to Australia and met Miles Stewart, current CEO of Triathlon Australia. He was the world number one at the time and I went and trained with his training group on the Gold Coast. And for a, a young pub boy, which I was, a surfy boy, I always wanted to be a pro surfer and grew up on the beaches and, and to fall into a professional training environment in triathlon for the first time in my career was a big eye-opener. I ultimately left that group after about 18 months and came back to Sydney and or went back to Europe and I came back to Sydney to prepare for the world championships in 1997. I was like 22 years of age and I, I was ranked number one in the world and it was, you know, off a couple of years of racing, but um, it was the beginning of the first ever Olympic cycle in triathlon. So it was a very, very critical time in the sport. And I'd put myself going into this race as the world champion. Uh, as the world number one, but a kid who'd never won a world title or anything. And I was going up against the monster at the time was a gentleman called Simon Lessing, you know, Brad Bevan from Australia, Greg Walsh, these sort of athletes, but Simon Lessing in particular and Hamish Carter were two athletes that just dominated short course racing around the world at that time. And we'd had wars all season, but Simon was sort of seen as the invincible. And I, I came back and did a block of work, opted to leave, um, the late part of the season of World Cup racing in the United States. I was living in Bowler at the time and um, moved back home, moved in with my parents, which as a 22-year-old was quite tough, and um, and just went back to basics with my dad right? and a couple of training partners, applied what I'd learned from a couple of years on the circuit, but into the old training environment that my dad and I sort of created. And we, we had zero experience in sport. My, my dad got into running because he quit cigarettes, right? So we, we just had this pretty raw training philosophy and I'd applied some of the stuff I'd learned through Miles Stewart's training group and, and, the, and, the, and the stuff that's pretty common now, like you know, block training and where we're doing our long rides and basically the consistency and the, and the makeup of the training block. But I did 12 weeks of unbelievable work where just I could feel the strength come week on, week out. I had mum cooking for me. We were monitoring everything. I just... To me, it was my first ever perfect training environment. And I've never entered a race so relaxed. I was yeah, obviously nervous because nervousness comes about by anticipation around the result you were after. But I, I knew I couldn't have done any more. And I was excited about 
the challenge of racing a world championships in Perth to winning a world title, which hadn't been done since what Miles Stewart had won it in 91. So we're talking six years later. And, and, and just, it was an amazing time in the sport. The sport was on, on the upper cusp. It was, it was growing astronomically. And I, I put together probably the race of my career that day and, you know, swam with Simon, you know, and first three out of the water, I wasn't renowned as a, as a lead swimmer, I could sit front pack, but I was never a lead swimmer. But that day I'd done so much work in the pool with Dick Kane over at Cars Park. He trained Olympic champions and, and I'd really focused on the marginal gains, fixing the little problems that were creating issues for me overseas. And, and they all came to fruition on that day. I dropped the first sub 30, 10 K off a bike. No one had ever done that before with a 29 and a half and, and won my first world title. And for me, it meant a lot because my father was a, a, a little reluctant of my choice to enter the workforce to leave the workforce and become a professional athlete he he was very disappointed in that decision and i think me winning that world championship at home there was a hundred thousand people on the course it was live on television in australia the lead up to sydney olympics there wasn't a bigger event to win and for him to see that i remember crossing the line saying dad this is what i do now and you know for him to embrace that for me it was just a remarkable training block and a remarkable outcome that will always go down in my books as as the best block of work I ever did for all those reasons, being a young athlete, trying to achieve a massive goal and executing. So yeah, yeah. it was pretty special. Yeah, that does sound like a special time in your life. Um, I, I've heard a lot of stories about you, um, but I, I've never actually talked to you. And 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 one of the one of the things I always hear is that you were a hard worker and, and you did train hard. Um, I think actually a lot of people describe it as, you know, like back in the day because there's they're sort of like this um, – aura of hard work around around the way you trained back in the day um so even back then as a 22 year old like how much were you doing like in that 12 week block um do you remember how much volume you were doing oh yeah without question i, I think look the you know i've trained with the crowies and crow will probably tell you on the podcast when you speak with him or you know train with the local ladies the greg walsh's the brad bevins i i was always a relatively insecure athlete to some degree which you did, i probably didn't portray but i i, I didn't think I was built for the sport. I was quite a bigger guy compared to these very small um, triathletes. Big one, I mean, I built my mum's Maori, so I had thick, thick waist, thick hips, big ass. Like, so I always had this insecurity that I wasn't blessed with as much talent as others. I was never measured, but that was an insecurity I carried with me my entire career. So I, the only thing I thought I could do was outwork anybody. And I used to tell myself, look, I'm, I'm Maori. I'm probably supposed to be 120 kilos. I'm only 78 kilos because I starved myself because I'm a triathlete. So I can probably absorb twice as much work as a properly built 78 kilo athlete. If you think of boxers do that a lot too. In, in boxing, they talk about weight. So I was a big boxing fan. So I, I do believe my work ethic was unparalleled and it became, especially in Europe, it became quite a, a not a, I came quite synonymous with it because I used to bring in athletes and sort of regurgitate them and spit them out of training camp, bring the next one in. So I think I built a lot of my confidence out of, out of that type of work. Um, and it was a very different era. We talk about that now with a lot of the science around now that is able to refine a lot of the work and probably take away a lot of the junk miles, you may call them, you know, and the other, there's an athlete in Stuart O'Grady, a very good friend of mine. We moved to Europe together. He won the yellow jersey in the Tour de France. He's, you know, Paris Roubaix winner, one of Australia's legend cyclists. He's also famous for hard work and he tells a story. I think all of Australians from that era were, he tells a story of training with Charlie Walsh 
going into the as an 18 year old into the Barcelona Olympics and he uh he got he got picked up on a pro contract with Garn which is a pro road team that ultimately came credit agricole um and when he went into that program as an 18 year old he was doing 12 1300 kilometer weeks right in, in Australia as a 15 16 17 year old you think of the volume of that on a young kid huh? when he got into the pro team they had the big talk with him and said, right, you guys are now hitting the big league. You're going to be riding 800 kilometres a week. He thought it was holiday camp. And, and I think Australians had that sort of that uh, inferiority complex coming from Australia and moving to other places that we carry with us in our training. And, and that's probably been fixed nowadays or fixed or refined with more access to science. But, yeah, for me, uh, you know, in that block you're asking, I, I was swimming you know, 45, 50 kilometres a week. I was up every morning, 5 a.m., 5 a.m., swimming till 7 7.30 with Dick Kane. I was riding 500k a week, but a lot of that um, with specific motor pacing work. Um, but the run volume was up. I was at 150k a week running, oh, yeah, running a lot. So, and, and, and I used to do gym work, yoga. I just lived it. I, and I, and the one good thing about hard work is I loved it. Like I didn't see it as hard work. And that's why I love Floyd Mayweather. It's like all work's easy work. I used to actually think that, right? I'm like, oh, mate. I just love to do it. I never, I never saw it as hard work. And that's why I used to struggle with my training partners at time who'd just be, you know, they'd break. And my headspace was there weak, you know, but it wasn't. I just was, I think my body was resilient and I was able to do the volume. And a lot of people came out of that workloads that I did, Craig Alexander being one of them, my main training partner for years and became exceptional athletes in their own right. Yeah, that, that's got to be like at least 35 hours a week, doesn't it? Oh, come on, 40 hours a week was my, I treated it like, an, again, through sheer ignorance, right? My, when my, my father was angry or disappointed that I quit Bankers Trust. I was a banker to become a triathlete. Um, he never had an education, so he's determined we got that. We all got our master's degrees and we all did our thing. And then, um, so my headspace was, okay, if I'm not going to be working 40 hours a week, I need to be training 40 hours a week because that's the way I can justify it to my dad. So I used to literally think like that. And it's easy to do 40 hours in a week because you've got seven days at a work week. You've only got really five, right? So 40 hours a week is a lot, but I used to only have every second Friday off. Um, and when I say off, I would, I might go to the pool and do a kick set, right? It was nothing. I never had a day of rest really. Uh, I, there would just be drop downs in, in workload. But what I learned with the Miles Stewart group was uh, I call it the mix where you put certain training sessions. If you're a triathlete to make that mix work and for make you absorb the work in the in the right ways because i think triathlon is very specific and that's a single sport with three disciplines how do you marry those three disciplines across a single program which is where training with those right coaches and now science has been able to to refine that a lot better than than uh than we're doing in my day yeah and how did you do that how did you set up your your mix as you call it i, I borrowed look it was a lot of trial and error you sort of work off you know, athletes are feeble creatures in the sense that we're so insecure that when we feel good, we, I, I keep, I was meticulous with my training diaries, uh, which is now, I guess, Strava and everything now, but mine are still all written diaries and oh, I've been keeping since I was a kid. I'm very OCD in that sense, which is probably why I was such an intense racer. And as you said earlier, I used to take it out of my competitors because I just, it just meant so much to me. And I, and you tend to look at when you're feeling good and what types of programs, back-to-back -back sessions seem to work and you start to find patterns. And Cole Stewart, 
and Brett Sutton, Brett, both two of the best coaches that have really ever existed in that era in the sport. Brett, without question, one of the greatest triathlon coaches of all time. They, you know, working with them over the years, you, you start to see how they put things together and you learn learn what they were doing. And you just borrowed from that. You realise, okay, everyone around the world seems to do that heavy Sunday, heavy endurance Sunday, for example. Then what do you put on a Monday off that big block? Or what do you, is it, you put that every second Monday? So, yeah, it was most trial and error and, and seeing what other people were doing. And once, you know, it's, it's not fancy. I say this to professional coaches. The difficulty when you're coaching amateurs is you feel like there's need to meet, for it to be com- complex because these people are paying you, right? So I see these programs that some of these amateurs get you're like oh my god that's just a coach justifying why you're giving him 500 bucks a week or whatever the money is right most of the time success comes from repetition of the same mundane sessions done you know multiple times before you you adopt and change them and uh and i I learned that pretty early and and where where i where i benefit a lot for for example i when i became an ironman athlete i actually reduced my running volume um, from that, I used to do 100 miles a week tended to be my run volume when I was doing ITU. When I was doing Ironman, I was doing 100K a week, which was a lot less. And people think, oh, you're running further. But I was riding so much further. And I found with that higher running volume off the bigger bike miles, I was losing my bike strength. And it was, a, it was an asset I couldn't, I couldn't afford to lose when you had athletes like Craig Alexander who weren't strong on the bike but were remarkable runners, especially in heat. You certain adjustments you had to make, and and that's what you you do on the fly, and you learn through trial and error, and 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 communication with a good with a good coaching team. Yeah, that that's what I was going to um, ask and, and get into. So you, we sort of started talking about what you were doing when you were a young fella racing short course. Um, and I think like you were, you were so amazing at that, but you're, you're far by far more, more well known for, for what you did in long course. Um, did that same training philosophy of, you know, 40 hours a week, um, the same sort of setup follow through all the way, like the whole way through your career? Did you train pretty much the same, um, in 2010 when you were, you know, a two time Ironman world champion as you did in that 12 week block as a 22 year old? Oh no, my evolution in training changed because my mindset around what I needed to be good changed. So I think the hardest work I ever did, now hard is a relatively relative term, not the biggest volume of work, but the hardest intensive work I did was 100% in the short course racing days. And I was sort of semi forced to move to Ironman. It was a very different looking time in the sport. Um, You know, there was no Ironman 70.3, for example. You either did ITU or Ironman. You know, there was no half Ironman 70.3 distances. They didn't come till 2006, 2007, right? So the first ever world championships, I think, was at 2006. I think Crowley won it. No one went. Everyone laughed at it. What the hell is this Ironman half 7.3? What used to be called half Ironman. It was a, now it's become an entity. But in those early days, we used to laugh about it. It was two weeks after Kona. So no one cared, right? And so I, my evolution definitely happened. And at and, and ITU level, you know, I guess my evolution to Ironman happened was forced on me when, when I, I, I thought I was unfairly left off the Sydney Olympic team because my mother had passed away and they didn't put me on the team. So I didn't think my headspace was right, even though I was world number one and, and you know, the last world champion they had and medaled at Worlds in, in 99. Um, 
yeah, they left me. So I got pissed off and I said, I'll never represent Australia again. And, and I moved to the United States. Now, when you're in the States, ITU doesn't exist. They had their own big events back then, non-drafty events, Chicago's, Alcatraz's, much different looking sport than today, but massive events, six, seven, 8,000 people, big prize money. And I found myself in America. And I thought, I don't need this high performance program of Australia. I'm going to run my own program here and just become a pro athlete. And in 2001, I stayed racing on the on the ITU circuit, but raced from my home base in the States, in San Diego, in McKeeley Jones. And I was world number one again. I won the Google Games. I won three World Cups. I, I, I was undefeated. So I came back, Triathlon Australia had re-employed people after the failings of Sydney. And they brought me back to Australia and had a conversation with me to move me back into ITU racing because the Athens course was a course that suited me. We'd done the test event there. And I said to them at the time, look, I'm happy in America. I, I, I want to race the Olympics in Athens, but I'm not going through this whole jumping through hoops for you thing, guys, again. Put me on the team. I'm your best athlete by far. I'm number one in the world. Your other guys suck, which was a bit rich, but at the time it was a, a little transitional phase. Peter Robinson was still there. and, sort of, and um, But there was a, it was a hole, and they, they refused to put me in. I said, no, you have to come back in the program. I said, up yours. And they said, what are you going to do? I said, I'll do Ironman, and they laughed because all the stats, all, the, all my years at the AIS had shown I, I was not built for Ironman, too big, too big a guy, carried too much weight, too low on my body. Um, I was going to struggle in heat and everyone had to perform in Kona. So that Ironman journey was forced upon me, like a lot of things I did was because I had a chip on my shoulder and I was basically up, yours, Triathlon Australia. I got to do, I did the Commonwealth Games in 2002 because they had to pick me because I was the number one ranked athlete. So I did that event and me won it and they kept trying to get me back. And then yeah, I didn't want, I did my first time in, I'm in Australia and I won beating Peter Reed, who was the world champion. And I just thought I was going to win Kona and potentially come back and win Athens. That was the plan. Um, in Kona that first year I had a 13 minute lead. I had no idea, man. Like I make my, my, my whole, my whole nutrition strategy. In fact, I rang Craig Alexander who had done a lot more long course racing than me because Craig never really had an ITU career. He wasn't ever in that six athletes. Australia was very powerful back then. So Craig was always doing half Ironmans in, in France and that, and he used to be in our club, but he was never an ITU race. We did a couple of ITU events, but I rang Craig about nutrition. I had no idea. And, and I remember taking, I did a, a half Ironman in Wildflower, which I won, which used to be the unofficial world championships of half Ironman. I had two gels because I thought oh, in an Olympic distance, I have one gel. So this is twice an Olympic distance. I'll have two gels. So my nutrition strategy for my first two Ironmans was, okay, it's an Ironman, um, it's four times Olympic distance. I'll have four gels. I'll have one every two hours. <laughs> it was so vague and so dumb. And so, so you know, I've got to, you know, it was just, I was so inexperienced and I thought I could out train my way, which I was able to do in short course racing in Ironman. But you quickly learn that it's a completely different beast whilst it may be swimming, biking and running. That nutritional element is a massive part of it and surviving to run a marathon when you're that fatigued is, is, is crucial. And it took me a long time to learn that. And that's why I was saying before I had to bring that bike mileage up, drop that run mileage because you're not running fast to run a 240 marathon. Okay. It's fast off for, for an Ironman, but it's not fast running. We can get, you know, it's, it's, it's being strong enough off the bike to be able to drop a 240 marathon. And that became basically my, my focus. And that was where I ultimately became that the big runner. And it wasn't until and I did that big running times off less running, which is interesting, right? But it wasn't until Craig came um, and the dynamics of Kona changed with the, you know, with the, the lack of the 
it became a pro-only start. Um, it used to be all everyone in together. So you had amateurs up there and people could get lost. But when I was a pro-only start in, in 2007, the first year of that, you know, it changed everything. And, and guys like Craig, who who don't, didn't get caught up in, because Craig was a good swimmer, not a great swimmer, but didn't get caught up in the, in the, in the age group fluff where you can miss groups and became a very specific race, which I think is for the better. Don't get me wrong. I think the pro race with pros in it is for the better, but it was just a completely different dynamic. And he, he was the, he was the single athlete that forced upon me a change to my racing to move away from running and go back to being a big biker with a strong, knowing I could run a, a, a low two forty marathon, but I needed the eight to 10 minutes on Craig who will always run a two forty marathon in Kona um, to ensure I won it. So yeah, you, you, your training evolves depending on the athletes, depending on the time, but the actual time of training doesn't really change. It's, it's what specifically you focus on during that time that potentially changes. Yeah. And, and so with that um, more focus on, on being strong on the bike, how much, how much cycling did you, did you shift to doing? Cause you were doing sort of 500 K in your ITU days. What did that change to? And, and even inside that, how did um, your sessions change um, when you, when you decided to become a, uh, or put more of a focus on your Ironman bike being stronger? Yeah, well, I fundamentally, I was residing in Boulder, perfect. I was residing in Boulder and I thought Boulder was a fantastic place for a, for a naturally strong athlete to build run pace because of the, the altitude, you, you lean up there, you get a lot leaner. But I found when you have a strength because you're naturally bigger, your bike is a strength, a natural strength that you can develop. And uh, I found I would lose that bike strength in Boulder which people nowadays go, that's bullshit. But I felt that. And when an athlete believes that, it's hard to get that out of their head, right? And, and, to, and to when you're dealing with pro athletes, and me in particular, I say to my wife now, because I deal with all the pros now with, you know, Jan and everybody from a, from a different perspective. And I ask if I was that much of a head case. And she's like, man, you're the worst, right? And, and you're dealing with delicate creatures. So they, they, many of the things they believe can become self-fulfilling prophecies. And I really believed I needed to leave Boulder if I wanted to build my bike riding, despite what the scientists were telling me, that I just needed to do different work. I thought because of the lack of air pressure, because I wasn't, didn't need to push out the same power, I was losing my ability to push out that power, I'm moving to sea level. So I went back down to, I, I stopped training in, in Boulder in 2009, moved back down. I always went to Europe, so I used to train in Girona. And in 2009 and 10, I stayed between Girona and 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 Los Angeles, um, where we lived anyway, and did uh, I did specific blocks on the bike work. So I do a, a May block. I do the early season racing. I'm in Australia. I do. I would do. Um, I would do Wildflower, which is a huge event. Two big events in the states. Then I would hit Europe, sit in Girona, and I do a big block of bike work with a lot of my cycling mates who were prepping for for Giro, for the Giro. So I would go Stewie, Dave Miller these type of guys and I do big 11, 1200 K bike weeks in, in the Pyrenees. And, and I found my body loved it. I could lean up, I could build that strength and I wouldn't lose. If I was prepping for an ITU race, I'd feel like I was losing my punchiness of the run, but I knew it was an Ironman so I could run relatively flat footed. So you can come off a big block of bike work and you feel heavy and, and not rhythmical in your running but I could convince myself that I didn't need to be rhythmical yet. I could build that rhythm into my run pace for a marathon. I only need to run six minute miles. It's not quick. So yeah, I did bike specific work. And then my fundamental bike weeks in that 2009, 2010 period where I was riding the house down in Ironmans, it was, um, 
yeah, I was doing about 800K a week on the bike and loving it. A lot of big motor pace session, a lot, probably 150K of that was, was being motor paced back home from long rides. You know, I do a 200K, 240K bike day, for example, or I do 180K at a certain pace in the last 60 behind a motorbike at 50K an hour, which is softer riding, volumes there. Fatigue is not so much there and it picks you up and I'm ready for the run off the bike in the afternoon. So it was all a matter of how you marry the sessions where we as triathletes tend to be quantitatively obsessed with what is the number of miles. What it, it's how you're doing those miles that was critical and motor pacing for me was a godsend. I was able to get the volume up, keep the legs relatively fresh to do the run volume and still survive off a heavy swim block because I did find the Ironman training really hurt my swimming because I was I was not naturally a well-balanced swimmer in the water. So I have a heavy ass, so I used to sink and, and I found that I'd get so lean in the top part of my body that I would just lose my ability to find balance in a long swim. I could get away with it for 1,500, but in, in, in the swims that were longer, I was struggling a little bit more. So just to go back to that period, um, so you won the Ironman World Championships in 2007 and, and Craig Alexander came second that year. Um, yep. He then went on to win it in 08 and 09. And you came back and, and won it in 2010 in what for me um, is probably my favorite favorite race of all time, that 2010 Ironman World Championships. Um, we're sort of, I don't know if this is how you felt, but but I sort of felt that everyone just um, had almost given Crowey the win before he'd actually won it, and just um, it was 100%. like it was like a it's 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 inevitable that Craig is going to become a three time world champion here, and. Um, and you just took that race by by the by the scruff of the neck, basically. And and why 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 I'm bringing it up is because what you were just talking about made me think think about it. And I've always wanted to know this. Um, what happened was you just you just tactically destroyed the bike, and 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 Crowley sort of blew up for for lack of a better work. And and you rode up the up the road and went on to have a the best battle in in Ironman history, in my opinion, with Andreas Raylet on the run where sort of speaks to what I was talking about earlier where you were just you were just tougher than everyone else and and you wanted to win more than anyone else and and outran him in the last couple of miles to to win the race um in your training leading up to that was was that the plan did that race go exactly how you sort of um had had been training for it to go I called it out with Bob Babbitt so to to give you the prelude to 2010 because I think it's important because a, a lot of the the rivalry they created between Craig and myself came off that period of time. Um, Craig came across to Ironman in 2006. He'd won the 70.3 World Championships two weeks after Ironman, which Ironman threw a lot of marketing at, invited him to the 2007 Ironman World Championships. He did Ironman Australia. And I trained a bit with Craig into Ironman Australia. So we had no issues with each other. Um, he got third in Ironman Australia in his first debut and, and Craig is a, the best to this day, and I'll argue, you can give me a yarn for Dino's, and maybe these Norwegians would change. Craig Alexander is the best runner. Forget your Mark Allen bullshit, all that crap. The best runner to ever run in Kona. The consistency of his run, the reliability of that run, the fact that he can perform in heat to exactly, he, he run the same in Ironman Australia as he would in Kona, which is a, a remarkable skill to have. And it is a skill, it's, it's, a, it's a genetic skill. So going into 2000 and, you know, I won in 2007, going into 2008, I had a mechanical and these new, which are now common, but I got given these um, Durace electronic gears. They were prototypes and uh, I didn't want to use them. 
and I was forced to use them. I had a malfunction with them that put me out of the race whilst I was leading at 90K on the bike. And I had to sit back that year and watch a title I'd fought for five years to get disappear. No fault of my, no fault of my own. I never used two race again, by the way, but um, <laughs> no fault of my own. I said, I'll never forget. I sat in the King Kamehameha Hotel um, with my agent, devastated, being brought back on a motorbike. Craig Alexander, an Australian, my old training partner, wins Kona, second attempt. I'm like, fuck. You know, I'm happy but sad, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I'm torn. And I go down and make congratulations. And, and I, I found that everybody just fucking pivoted, right? Like, I'm like, hang on a sec. I, I, I just want Ironman. Frankfurt in, a, in what, 7.52. I've just had the best ever season. I lost Kona because of mechanical. And I'm, I'm yesterday's hero. Give me a break. I'm going to come back in 2009 and win. If I can show you guys. So I did the same season. Run, won Ironman Frankfurt again. Had a great season again in 2009. Went to Kona and had my career worst swim. Still to this day, don't know why. Anyone go and look at that, 54.40 for the swim. Four minutes 40 behind Craig Alexander, who usually swims on my feet. I don't know what happened. Can't put a point on swimming great before the thing. It's just one of those days, worst careers. But I lost that race by four minutes. I led that race till 21K of the bike. And I walked and 21K of the run, I walked and Craig passed me and Andreas passed me. And I came back and finished fourth, four minutes from the win. So I used to say to everyone, Put me back in where I usually swim, I win. Right? But nobody wanted to hear Craig is now a two-time winner and I'm a one-time winner. And it was Mac is dead and there was a lot of talk around that. And I'm like, look, and this is where the rivalry came up because I was adamant. I was like, if we're talking about Andreas Raylert here or, or some young punk who's 10 years younger than me, I could probably swallow that this is a changing of the guard. But I know Craig. He's a month older than I am. Right? Like he's, we're not talking about a young buck here. And I have trained with him for 20 years. I know who this guy is. Forget all the bullshit you're writing in the magazines. I can ring this bloke up and I, we've known each other since we're 17, 18, raced each other. Like, so I'm not going to buy into your bullshit. Like, I'm not buying into your hype. When I say he's a shit bike rider, he knows I'm saying it as a professional to a professional. And he knows that I know it pisses him off. Right? So in, in, in February, I went to, with Bob Babbitt, so February of 2010, and I've been relatively vocal around my disappointment coming forth and people watch results. They don't watch races. If they knew races, they would sit there and know that I didn't swim normally. Like they would know they'd be looking, wow, he had the fastest bike split and he nearly won that thing. Put him in. No one talked about it because they were, they were in love with the romance of a two-time champion. And I went with Bob Babbitt and I was in, in Louisiana. It's on YouTube. And I said exactly what I was going to do in Kona and the whole world might read the hate mail underneath. I said, I'm going to attack to the winds going up to Harvey. Craig Alexander uses these new SRM things. SRMs had just come out, which was power meters. So the bloke doesn't ride the bike hard. He'll sit there and look at his little power number. He'll feel the pain in his legs and he'll opt to back the run. And that is the opportunity I'm going to strike. And I ask all of my peers, Marino Van Oenacker, Andreas Rayler, Timo Brucht, um, 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 Aneko Lanos, Luke McKenzie, if you honestly want to win Kona, then you need to come with me. Otherwise, sit in the pack and get dropped like you have the last two years by a bloke who's going to run 240 every day of the week. And they were bought into that story. Now, the whole story is that I got everybody to work with me. Bullshit. I just showed everyone the best way to win the race was because every year when we got to Harvey, Craig would move to the back of the group. 
would spin the legs out, uh, the, the climb to Harvey, Kawai High to Harvey, which is about 70 kilometres into the bike ride up to 140, and you, you ride a 40, 50K home. He would sit inside the legs and his fitness would get him home. I was saying, if you apply the pressure, the gaps in the crosswinds will explode. We'll have 10 minutes on this guy. You put all the bike power up in that front group, he'll be a 10-minute lead. Craig Alexander nullified. And it's exactly what happened. The attacks came first initiated by Tim O'Brucht, and we missed those attacks early. Four of them went up the road, and I attacked Craig and the group um, about 12 kilometres from Harvey into the, into the headwind, which is a, a faux pas in cycling, but in an Ironman racing, you should attack into a headwind because they're very concerned of their power. I watched Craig let the gap open, ran the Tissing went across, went, came with me. We rode, it took us 25K to ride across the front group. Upon getting to that front group, I said, boys, let's go. We're going to have 10 minutes, I told you. And we literally every 10K rode another minute and we got off the bike with a 10-minute lead. And then it was just a rundown of, of, of Andreas Raylett, who at that time, I believe, was the heir apparent because his performances in Ironmans in Europe were remarkable. He won the European Championships that year and in the most D, ran a 236 marathon off a 417 bike on a course that was six kilometres long. It was ridiculous. The guy was doing amazing things. And, um, yeah, and I, I just beat... Andreas on, yeah, I guess the anger from having to prove myself when I didn't feel like I had to. The told you so, and told you so, I'm not going to let this let this one go. And and the humility of having to sit there for two years and wear it, right? And that's just the when I say the the, the not that I had any animosity towards Craig. That's that's what I don't want people to think. But when something you want so bad and someone else has it, it's normal for you to want to take it back by any means, right? Like, and, and I felt that that title was mine and I, and I was robbed out of a 2008. I was beaten fair and square in 2009, but that's why I retired in 2010. I stood up on the podium and said, you'll never see me here again. I've, I've loved this race. It's not for me. I've got two titles. I wish it was more. Adios amigos. I'm never coming back to Kona. I'm never racing here again. And that was, uh, that was a very, very satisfying race for me in no sense. And, and all the media and everything built up this whole fight story with Craig, which we ultimately adopted ourselves because it was good for us. But it just came off the back of my inability to accept that it was a changing of the guard because there was no reason why it should be. He wasn't 10 years my junior. It, you know, it wasn't Jan Fredino. And I'm sitting there, okay, time to walk aside, old fella. Everyone's still winning was one or two years younger or, or, or older than I was. Yeah. When you were, when you were training leading into that 2010 race, how much were you thinking about um, the dynamics of the race? Like would you every day think about beating, you know, Craig in that, that race or, or were you still, you know, pretty internally um, motivated? I was, I was really dictating and people like, oh, I was really, cause I was living a lot in Europe at the time, just trying to get out of the hype of America. And I was, I did most of my block that year in Girona and just polished up a bit in, in, in Los Angeles prior to going into Kona two weeks early, but I was in Spain and, and, and my Swiss club predominantly. So a lot of the workload we were doing was built around that bike strength. We're doing a lot of strengthies on a lot of the climbs in, in, out of Girona I was doing a lot of motor pace work where we'd go out very, very hard, hard, like drop a lot of lactate in the legs early. And then I do long rides off the back of it. So sustaining strength when I, when I was, when, when I was relatively fatigued and my, my whole motivation was, I, I, I was convinced I would beat Craig. This is the, 
uh, Craig's probably going to hate me saying it, but I'd say it to his face, and I have said it to his face. In my head, for whatever reason, it's what made me tick. I could not accept that Craig Alexander was better than me. My my history had shown I was better than him. I raced him 100 times. He beat me three times in his life, right? So I was like, I'm better than you. I'm not going to accept that you're better than me. So it was the athletes I didn't really have have a history with that I was more concerned about. And that predominantly was Andreas Raylert in particular. And um, yeah, he, he scared me a lot, to be honest. And, and so did Timo Brucht, who was really developing his run to become quite a weapon. And Marino Van Oenacker, who whose bike ride when it was on, if he swam well, I knew he was a much stronger rider than me. And the way he executed his rides were against what I wanted to do because he sort of, built, 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 and his last 60K was very, very hard. I was hope, I was asking these athletes to be aggressive in that middle section, where, which is not a Marina Van Oek hacker approach. So I thought he could be an Achilles heel in my attack strategy because he may keep Craig in the mix by staying with that second group. But ultimately, luckily, he ended up in the group with us. It was a major asset. But, yeah, it wasn't an obsession with Craig. It was an obsession around how I was going to attack this race. It was now my what, ninth attempt, 10th attempt at Kona. So yeah, I did 10 of them. Um, I knew the course. I knew the winds. I trained there. I'd spent so much time on that island. I'd won the 70.3 there, what, six or seven times. Uh, I knew that place back to front. I knew the winds, knew how they worked. So I was trying to apply what I knew through experience, which I didn't have in my early years, to a strategy that ultimately worked. And that was by being super strong in that middle section and, and using – I really, really built a lot of my strength and confidence on my bike by doing a lot of those Pyrenean, by climbing, by doing a lot of mountain work, climbing. I found that I, I felt that it leaned me out through the core section. I got a lot of core work done. I was doing um, TT-specific work on a TT bike on flat stages, but most of that early, that most of that early block work was done on a road bike, big volume over, over, over set courses that we knew you know, we, we knew the history of because most of the Tour de France riders, you know, at that time, Lance had called Girona home for years. So there was a lot of the, the loops, you know, we used to call they were the, the, the postal loops and, oh, you know, Lance and George did this loop in 550, you know, so that was sort of all these urban myths that used to go around. So you used to sort of set your targets around those times, right? It was, it was quite a cool different period of time, but I absolutely thrived and loved, I love, I love that. I love having a plan. I love executing on it. I love feeding it, living it, breathing it, talking it, and then bringing it to realization. In 2010, man, that was that was a masterpiece because yeah, it, it went exactly how we said it would. And and I proved when I sat there in that press conference and all the athlete, all the press that had the year before basically shit canned me. I said, no, no, you said last year I was done, mate. Now you're a groupie. I'm not answering your question. And no, 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 mate, you said, and I quote, you said that. You know, it's a new age. Well, it's not a new age. He's the same age as me, mate. I told you that. You just like to watch races, not results, man. You know, like you watch results, not races. And that was that was where this whole conflict sort of came about because it was a, you know, definitely a chip on my shoulder in that sense. But I really reacted and worked well under that type of duress. And um, in that race, like I sort of mentioned earlier, you, um, in my opinion, it's the there's a lot of talk about the the Iron War, but. In my opinion, that 2010 race, um, that battle between you and Andreas deep into the run is is the best sort of one-on-one um, -on -one battle in, in triathlon history. Um, and I don't think you can change my opinion on that. Can you take me inside your head when you were running toe-to-toe um, -to -toe with uh, Andreas in the, in the deep stages of that 
that that marathon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it pretty vividly. It was, you know, Andreas. I'll tell you a little a little story because I do tend to waffle. But the, at the beginning of that year, we did we both did Ironman Frankfurt, right? Um, European Championships. And I've known Andreas and Michael. Michael was a two-time 70.3 world champion, his brother, Michael Raylord at the time. Um, I've known them years. They're 10 years my junior. And, and so I knew them from the ITU racing. I'd raced them a lot, and I watched them do the Olympics. And he, the year before in Frankfurt, I, I just won this race, in a, in a, and I could have broken a world record. I blew to pieces and survived. And I was sitting at this, at this um, breakfast table with Michael, Andreas, and their coach. And we're having breakfast now, um, you know, three or four days before I'm in Frankfurt, which was July. And at that table, we're talking and the coach in his not very good English said to me, I watched you last year here in Frankfurt and it was very dumb what you did. Now, I understand now it's just the translation of his English, but I took that. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, very stupid what you did last year. You could have broke record and you push, push, push when there was no need to push. Dumb, dumb preparation, dumb, dumb race execution. I said, well, mate. Everyone's an expert in hindsight, you know, and, and, you know, yeah, yeah, I blew up and, yeah, I walked and, but I still won the fucking thing. Yeah, like, he's like, yeah, 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 but it's dumb. And I was getting a bit agitated. And Michael must have read that I was agitated, right, just by my reaction to his coach. Anyway, I was firing back and forwards. I'm like, yeah, yeah, mate, well, the difference between me and probably your guys is I'm prepared to have a crack. I'd rather die trying than to never try at all. That's just my mindset, right? And uh, anyway, he went, up, he went up to the breakfast buffet with, Andreas and Michael, who must have read the situation, said, Hey man, he's just our coach. His English is not very good. But just so you know, like me and Mike, me and Andreas, you're our idol. And I was like, What? He's like, Oh man, Andreas has your pictures on, on his wall. You, you're his idol. He got a photo with you as a junior. He was in world championships when you won as a pro. You're his idol. I was like, Oh, really? So I remember thinking, I guess I am older than these guys. So I, I remember that. So that conversation is important because you need to understand that in the context of the race. So I've had this conversation. Andreas Rayler ends up kicking the shit out of me in, in Ironman Frankfurt in the best performance I've ever seen, wins the race. And now we're going to Kona. Right. And I remember thinking, Fuck, I've got to beat this Andreas Rayler guy. But knowing that his whole journey to this, to this point of his career where he is, sort of like me with Brad Bevan. Brad Bevan was my idol. And I found it very difficult to beat Brad because I just saw him as this God, right? Um, that he would, he would view me in the same way, even though he'd try not to, it's, it's, you can't help it. You've watched all the videos. You, you, you've cheered for them. You, you, you go for them. You, you, you've given a piece of yourself to them. So in the race, um, you know, we got away. Crowey's now nullified. And I'll, we're, going, we're coming up a climate scenic lookout on the bike. And I was dropping through the pack to see where everybody is. We're about 40K from the transition from bike to run. And I thought, I'm going to position myself behind Andreas. I wasn't in this position in Frankfurt. He rode away from us. So now I'm here. And I was looking through the group and I realized he was out of the saddle a lot. And he looked uncomfortable. It was a very hot day that day. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm going to go. I feel great. I'm going to, I'm going to launch an attack, which no one will expect. And I attacked um, yeah, just over the top of Sydney. Look out, probably 35k from home into a bit of a headwind. And a guy called Reynard Tissink came with me, and we were able to get a minute 20 lead on the group. And that's the minute 20 that Andreas spent the whole race chasing. And that was initiated 35k up from the bike because I felt that he was tired. I felt that he was tired and happy to get off the bike. Right? 
Um, so my first aim was, oh, look, I know Andreas is an IT guy. He's going to find the early pace hot. I'm going to run out of transition like I'm going to win this race. So, I, you know, the first chance you run up, you run along a leaky drive and you go out towards, um, you, know, you sort of go out along the coastline. It's a, you, turn, you turn at five miles, so about 8K, there's a turn. So the first 16 kilometres of Kona is all in town. And quite big crowds, but the first opportunity you get to see your competitors is the turnaround after 8K. So I thought to myself... I don't want to give up any time in this first date. So I know he's going to run quick. Let's commit. Crowey's out of the game. It's Raylert, Brucht, Van Oenacker. These are the athletes I've got to look for. Maybe a Lanos, but he's not going to have it. But, you know, and Crowey may run himself into fourth or fifth, right? But I, I knew he wasn't. But Andreas had the capabilities of running a big marathon. And, you know, I came through town, held his, held his gap, saw him. He looked remarkable. Got, got my first check on everybody and realised it was Van Oenacker and, and, and Raylert that were running for the medals and Crowey is going to come through, but I only have to really focus on two if I could hold it together. And then as we climbed out of Polani, so about 16K, 17K, you start to move out into the lava fields. I was feeling great. It was always a, a key point of mine because in years past, I had walked up Polani Hill in my first ever Kona. Um, I got caught on Polani Hill. I lost a 30 minute lead there. So it's always been for me a mental point on the race to get over Polani and start the lava fields and be ready. And I felt great. But as I was running out through the lava fields, I realised I was losing about 10 to 15 seconds per mile on, on, on Andrea. So he's obviously having a run at me. And I thought, okay, here he comes. He's going to come at me. I feel okay, but I'm not going to force it. We still have a long way to go. Just accept the fact that this guy's going to catch you. He's going to catch you. So you just try and convince your head, you know. Everyone talks about the physicality of Ironman, but it's the mental game you're playing with yourself that trumps it all. You know, this com constant uncomfortable conversation with yourself. And I, I, I accepted that he was going to catch me. And I calculated at a minute 10, he should catch me as I'm coming halfway down into the energy lab. So I'm 15 seconds of miles, four and a half miles, the energy lab. Yep. Yep. And that's, that was sort of the, so in that next four and a half miles, I'm just going to nutrition up, hydrate up, expect the catch. When he catches me, I can at least see him. I'm not looking over my shoulder and we'll work it out from there. So after you accept that, you have this element, this feeling of relaxation that you've made a decision and you're going to go with it. And I, and I, and I took on the food. And as I got into the energy lab, I was running down where I was expecting him to catch me. He didn't catch me. Right. So you build confidence from situations like that. I was like, oh, well, he's obviously human as well, because all you always think about is yourself, but you never think your opponent is hurting as well. I'm like, well, he hasn't called me because he's tired. And, you, and I was feeding myself from, from that fact that he hadn't caught me when I'd anticipated him to catch me. So I said, okay, just keep waiting. And, that's, and, and I came out of the energy lab and he still hadn't caught me and it was now at 25 seconds. To, and then we got to literally, well, it was six kilometres from home, seven kilometres from home just before the, you know, the, the, and he caught me at 10 seconds. You know, I remember them coming up and you see it and I had a bit of a stitch in my side. I started to get... Um, really uncomfortable, but uh, I was relieved when he caught me. So he sort of came up and I heard him take this deep breath, like <sighs> made it, you know, like I've got him. And to me, that was like, okay, perfect. So I had a good look at him and I said, Hey mate, how you going? And uh, I thought the best way to do it. Cause then I remembered this conversation that his younger brother had had with me. It's amazing where your mind goes in, in a, in a race. You're looking for any opportunity, any opportunity to be the alpha to feel better, to, to be able to, to strike, right? And I remember, hey, mate, this guy, don't forget this guy worships you, mate. That was, I remember thinking that vividly. 
So speak to him like you're Brad Bevan, like Brad Bevan used to speak to you. You're the boss. You're the alpha. I said, good job, mate. Good, good race. So I talked down at him. I always stayed one step in front of him. And I always made it sound like when I spoke to him, I'm winning this thing, whether you fucking believe it or not. I'm, you're, you're just here for the ride. So even when I handed him a sponge, I said, yeah, mate, take some, get some water in here. And he shook my hand. I was, I was always talking to him like I'm the alpha. You're just... You know, and I wanted him to really buy in, whether he did or not. And it was just the way I was telling myself, remember, I'm the guy you used to have on your wall, mate. You've watched me kick the shit out of guys. You know this. You, you've run this through your head a million times. It's just instead of you, instead of Jürgen Zach, it's you. Or instead of, you know, Norman Stadler, it's you. But you're still going to play this in your head. And I remember getting a little bit ahead of myself. I felt so good. And I started talking about the iron wall. Mate, it's like the iron wall, mate. You know, I just wanted to talk to him like life was easy, and it wasn't. I was, I was definitely uncomfortable, but I just wanted him to buy into the comfort of being with me, right? And and maybe forgive himself for wanted to remind him that cerebrally I'm I'm superior to him. You know, mentally I I'm your hero. And so I got a bit ahead of myself because I heard him sort of, I felt that he was struggling a little bit. So I made a move on the climb, which they call Mark and Dave Hill from the 89 climb. It's where Mark Allen made his move on Dave Scott. It is exactly three kilometres from the finish line. It's a one kilometre gradient of about five and a half percent. It goes up and then you swing right down Polani Hill and it's basically downhill home, down Polani. So I made a move and I got a gap on him and then I got really uncomfortable. Then I panicked. I thought, shit, I'm a long way from home. I started getting a stitch. I'm like, don't blow this by being stupid. You don't need to win this 3K out. You only need to out-sprint this guy. You know, don't, don't be dumb. Don't make any dumb mistakes here. And uh, so I, I sort of took off the gas on that, on that move, but I'd already gapped him by about six seconds. And I said, again, you're feeding insecure thoughts. So I remember thinking it took him a long time to catch up six seconds before. Let's make him catch up. And he caught me right as we made the right-hander as I'm coming down the hill to Polani Hill, right as he got on, and again, he made that breath, and he ran up beside me, and we're just about to enter this aid station, and I'm thinking, okay, it's all downhill home, we're 2k from that, we're less than 2k, we're a mile out now, and I heard him yell, water, coke, 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 because we're coming to this aid station, I'm like, fuck, man, you want Coca-Cola this late in the race? No dramas, pal, so I went straight in front of him, positioned myself in front of him, as I'm allowed to, because I was leading anyway, and I proceeded to have first run at the volunteers throwing the water because I knew he wanted the water. I was happy to go without it, but he was screaming for it. So I'm going to take it before he gets it, which is a racing move. I'm not doing anything illegal, but I'm in front of him. He needs, so I was grabbing the water, putting it on my head, drinking it, grabbing water. And I could hear him yelling, going, water, water, water. So he was still trying to get water off the other volunteers who had to come across and get him. And a voice in my head said, mate, go. Go, dude. Just go. Commit now. It's it's time. He's He's, he's thinking about negative things. Oh, I need some fuel before I, I, I launch an attack on this guy. I need coke. I'm going to launch an attack. Let's, let's have a surprise attack. So I just gassed it down this downhill and the gap opened dramatically, very, very quickly. And I caught him by surprise. And I think once I, once I made that commitment to go, I remember, you know, you're down a long downhill and you make a, a turn. It's a false flat along, along Kuakini Highway, I think it's called, along Hulua Lower Road. And uh, you're about, oh, 1400 meters from the finish and i remember it all that's the hot corner it's a big vibe place all the age groups are coming out on their run so it's a lot of energy i was in agony man i was all in but i kept thinking to myself you know what this is every track session you've ever done since you're a kid man 
This is every time dad drove you to the running track. This is every day you haven't seen your kids. It's all about this moment, man. Like, I don't care if you're frigging the kidneys fall out, mate. You're getting to that finish line first. And do not look back. I was in agony. I was trying to push my diaphragm back up because my stitch was so bad. I thought I'm not going to make it. I couldn't breathe. And had he caught me, I would have folded. Honestly, I was all in. And at about 600 metres out before the finish line, there was a guy on a bike called Eric Gilson. And I've known Eric for years. He's one of the major technical directors at Ironman. He, he one of the founders of Goo. He just nominates his time at Kona Pro Race and he was sitting on the motorbike and he's the one that holds the chalkboard up that tells you the time gaps. And I said, Eric, man, he was right in front of me, about to make the right. I said, how far back is he, man? I, was, I thought I was going to die. And he, he, he looked up and said, Chris, you know I'm not, allowed, I'm not allowed to tell you that he's nowhere in sight because we're not really allowed to talk to those guys. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked at him and he sort of gave me a, a little smile to say you fucking won it, man. And I made the turn, I looked over my shoulder and, and Andreas was gone. I'd broken him and I was able to enjoy the last part of the race. The, the pain goes away and man, it was amazing, amazing. I celebrated the whole bit and it was just all a climax of years of I told you so's. But in 2007, I was so desperate to win. I don't remember the finish very much. I didn't even zip up. I had fucking... I left the sponges in. It was just such an emotional thing for me because I'd wanted to win that race for so long. And, you know, I'd watched it as a kid. I promised my mum on a deathbed that I'd do that. So it meant so much. But in 2010, it was a highly personal win. That's why I was so comfortable with retiring from the race because I didn't actually love the race. And I believe it was the best ever race I put on the, on the course. So it's the best time to walk away. And it was, yeah, it was a very, very special day. But that was pretty much what went through my head. I remember yeah, crossing the line going, wow. So my kids, they were old enough to realize that this is what I did. And, and, you know, old enough to I'm sure they'd still do remember that, remember the day quite vividly. And for me, it was, I never forget across the line, Mark Allen, Bob Babbitt there. And Bob's like, man, you did it. And I said, you know, the best thing, Bob, I never have to come back here again. <laughs> done. I never have to come back to Kona again. And that was, yeah, for a race that shaped my career, it was a race I really struggled with. I won every other Ironman I ever did, no, except for Cairns towards the end of my career. But, you know, I won, what, 18, 19 Ironmans. And Kona was an Achilles heel because of the heat that I learned so much about myself. I learned to love the race. But, yeah, it was it was a race I I, I enjoyed the preparation for. I enjoyed racing, but I, I definitely left a lot of my soul out on that, on that lava field. Yeah, I, wow. Um, I just got goosebumps listening to that story. I'm um, the first thing I'm going to do when when we, we when we wrap up this chat is I'm going to go to YouTube and, and I'm going to rewatch 2010 and, and that last um, that last part of the run. Now with with that story you've just told in my head, I think it'll add a whole whole other uh, layer to it that I'm, I'm actually really excited to go and watch that watch that back. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Hey, um, have you have you talked to Andreas since that race? about everything that happened and about that that battle that went on um that psychological battle that went on um that you just described yeah yeah i, I know as i said michael and andy are good friends and actually i said first thing after he watched the coverage of the race i said this is a race that he doesn't realize yet andreas Raylert's going to look back at this race and this is a race that he lost i didn't win uh, he, he was just outplayed he 
he, he was, it was just an experience. And I think he could accept that now. I don't think at the time he did. He got second a couple more times. He got second to Yarn a couple of years ago. He got so he's just he's had more silver. If silver prices go up, he'll be a wealthy man because he's he's been second kind of so many times. And he's such an amazing, humble champion. Um, yeah, I haven't talked specifically about what we did, but he's read it enough. I know he read my book. He wrote the excerpt from my book in Germany. So, yeah, he knows it enough, and he knows the respect I have for both him and, and his brother. And and now he's at that point where he was made obsolete by Jan Fredino, right? So he, he's, he's, he understands where I was in my career in relation to him and and, and vice versa. So, mate, it's, it's a cruel – it's a very, very cruel race, and that's why, you know, when you get athletes like Crowey who are who make Kona look easy, and Tim DeBoom was another one, you know, Tim, you know, Tim DeBoom was, you know, he won one, two, three Ironmans in his life from 20 starts, and four Ironmans, two of them happened to be Kona. He just could execute in Kona, you know, they were just there. It's a very, very, very difficult, difficult place to execute. And if you struggle with, with hydration, nutrition, and, and cramping, it's a tough race to nail. So it's, uh, you know, it's interesting this year in 2022 with the cancellation of Kona for the first time ever, they're putting uh, Ironman World Championships in Utah in May and then they'll have Kona in October. You're hearing talk already amongst the pros where oh, I can't win in, you know, this the Utah race will suit this person, this person, this person, you know, like, and that's the both the beauty and the irony of, of Ironman is that you have this one course that suits a limited amount of people, but judges everybody so that's why i take so much from from mastering it because every piece of science that triathlon australia ever told me every piece of science that the australian institute of sport ever tested me in heat chambers and that i cannot go long and i cannot win in heat and the success in kona for me is always about don't you know everyone used to say to me in crowe in particular macker only puts people around him that likes to tell him what he wants to hear and i used to say absolutely that's what i do because if I put the people to tell me what I don't want to hear, which is I can't win the race and I can't win, why the hell do I want them in my camp? I want people to tell me that I can win it and how am I going to do it? Right? And, and, and that was really the training philosophy that I adopted, buying into the, not buying into the reasons why I can't win because it's easy to do that and easy to blame heat. And I did that in my own, easy to blame my size, easy to buy, but no one cares about the excuses. At the end of the day, you have to execute, you have to win it. So stop being a victim and start being a performer and working out solutions. So I used to put people in my camp that would work with me and tell me how I could deal with the cramping issues that would cost me this race, deal with the, the weight loss that I needed to be competitive, how to get that weight off effectively. In years past, I used to be very focused on just dropping weight quick. And, and I realized I was getting too old. It had too much of an effect on my body. So slowly taking that weight off over a six, seven month period, reducing that muscle mass that I, that I naturally carry as a Maori. And if you see me now, what am I? I don't train as much. I train once a day, but I sit at 88 kilos, 90 kilos. That's my natural weight. So to be 76 kilos for me was always very, very difficult. And you're racing guys like Crowey who are 67 kilos and, and that's their natural weight, which very, very, very much suits an Ironman athlete in hot conditions. With your, you've talked about your diet a few times. I was actually going to ask it and you just really brought it up, which um, is pretty fitting. You, you, you've constantly sort of talked about how over in the mountains you'd lean up and, and, and it must have been very, like very clearly, it must have been a big thing you were focusing on your weight, your weight, your weight. Um, what, what were you doing? Were you just always conscious of your food or would you just train more? No, it was, it was definitely food consciousness. We, we learned that through the ITU days 
without question, Brett Sutton was a national coach at the time. He was weight obsessed. Um, he sort of had this philosophy that light's good, light is even better, right? Like, and we just didn't eat. Like it was, it was a very unhealthy, you know, a very, very unhealthy nutritional environment, very raw that probably wouldn't be able to exist today under a high performance program. But it was, we, we had weigh-ins Tuesdays and, and, and Saturdays. Um, old school weigh-ins where we weighed, jotted our weight down publicly, right? So I, I was weight was always an obsession of mine. But what I realized when I came across the Ironman, you know, in an ITU, it's very easy to correlate. Get lighter, you're faster. But Ironman's strength endurance. Ironman is, is being able to hold and retain fuel and use that fuel effectively, burn the right fuel. So I, I found by chance a, 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 a weightlifter you know, a bodybuilder, not weightlifter. I was in, I was in Monaco at a 70.3 race. And after the event, I was at a restaurant, this big Mr. Universe from, from America. It was a mate of a mate of mine. And he was getting into nutrition in, in triathlon because he said, I've never met a sport outside of bodybuilding that is so obsessed with nutrition. Right. And I said, Oh, it's, it's, that's the epicenter of our sport, mate. Anyway, I, I asked him about cramping. So I said, I have chronic cramping problems. And he said, oh, mate, that's just rookie rookie preparation. I'm like, what do you know about cramping? He said, well, bodybuilders cramp more than anybody because we have such big muscle mass. And to perform, we have to dehydrate so much to show the muscle that we lose all the minerals that when we, when we do our poses and our flexes, we're putting a muscle under duress to flex with no electrolytes in the blood, really low plasma. So we cramp. So cramping can cost you a competition. So when it comes to cramping, Mate, you are talking to the top of the tree experts in cramping, being bodybuilders. I'm like, really? I didn't know that because I don't really follow bodybuilding. So I said, oh, what's your theory on that, mate? He's like, uh, well, you know, it's long-form hydration. You don't, you don't hydrate the blood. Like most people go to a race and they just drink two days before and all you're doing is filling out your plasma and pissing that out. Hydration is a strategy that you need to implement for a long period of time, as is weight loss, right? He said there's, there's water loss. But bodybuilders are very conscious of the volume of food they eat and how they eat it and when they eat it because they need to bring their weight up and down or for them it's mainly building muscle and then bringing that, the, the fat out. So I used to deal with him a lot and talk to him a lot about And that's when I realized I said to MG, a guy I was working with my whole career, I said, look, I want, to form, I want to reduce my carbs, which at that time, man, was like blasphemy. You know, carbs is the fuel for triathlon. That was, you know, take a gel, take a gel. Now we're hearing ketosis and all these things that have come since the London Olympics. But we naturally went into a low-carb environment in 2010, and I was relying a lot more on fats and trying to build ketosis and, and my ability to burn fat as a, as a source better than, than, than pure carbohydrate. And we even changed the gel I was using from a, from the cliff bar gel, even though I was sponsored by them, I started using a multi-dextrose based gel, which is a little bit more complex carbohydrate. It was still a carbohydrate, but it wasn't so simply absorbed, right? All carbohydrates need to be broken down to glucose, passed across the stomach wall, but um, it was a little bit more detailed. I wasn't having any stomach issues and I found I didn't have to have as much sugar during the race. So I brought my weight down over time, um, predominantly through low, lower, lower carb consumption, and then we really fiddled with, with the intensity work. So I found intensity work really in, in, in initiating that slow, the fast twitch muscle fibers for me. When you're doing a lot of slow twitch work in Ironman, I could lean out my muscle a lot more. And I was able to, able to that year to sit at a very good weight for me, which was 77 naturally. And I could get that down to, you know, by the end of a marathon, it'd probably be 70, 
four seventy three kilos because you lose so much fluid. But I was fit, strong. Usually, when I got under seventy eight kilos, I would I would break a little bit. But I found in two thousand and ten, I got lean early. Um, I didn't put the weight on in the off season, which is just a natural weight for me. I, I was very attentive to portion sizes, what was in the food for the first time, limiting the carbohydrate, increasing the fat content, and and I yeah, I was I was pretty much a keto diet. When you when you see it now, I look at it and go, oh, God, I wish I put my name on that thing. But yeah, we're, we're doing keto work, and yeah, and I was able to, as I said, that that weight was it was below natural weight that I thought was natural, but I achieved it in a completely different way, which I think it became a weight that my body was happy with under the, under the diet that I was, I was on. But in my whole, a lot of athletes, a lot of athletes don't have the, the issues of, of weight and food. And for me, it was, it was part of the reason I wanted to retire. Honestly, I, I found that part of the whole journey for me, very, very difficult, especially as I aged. Yeah. Um, and, and looking back on, on your whole career, um, is would you say like you walked away on top and and it's it, not many not many athletes across any sport get to do that but but you walked away in in what I'm sure everyone looks back as your best ever performance. Um, do you have any do you have any regrets throughout your career or or is there anything that you that still eats away at you that, that you wish you had it done or you wish you could have changed? Yeah, I wish I did. I wish I didn't. Wasn't so. Yeah, in that whole 2001 2 period, and I was number one in the world. I was racing the best short course race. 2001 was my best short course year, even though, you know, I, I'd won the world in 97. And 2001, I won Google Games, Australian Champs, you know, three World Cups, was world number one, won the, the Ameri- Pan American Games. So I was on a, and I crashed at Worlds when I would have won. Um, and I should have gone to Athens. I did the test event in Athens and won it. I, and I just, yeah, that's my biggest regret, not doing an Olympics because Athens, you know, even Hamish says it now who won in Athens and Bevan Doherty and Greg Bennett was fourth. That course was not a course built for the, the new breed, which was a Peter Robinson with a big run and the Brad Carterfels with these big runs. You know, they were, it was still an old school course where you had to be able to do the three disciplines. In fact, the bike, especially the attack out over the peninsula in, in, in Athens, where it was very, very windy, that whole transition across to this, swim fast, sit in a group, run fast, got its doors blown off that day. And, and if you look at the top 10, Olivia Marceau, they're all my generation of athlete. And I believe I should have just hung around for Athens because even though I won what, six, five or six Ironmans in that period and, you know, I was becoming a, an Ironman guy, I was too young to do Ironman. And, and I had no, I had no experience. Even though I was a world champion, I was still relatively inexperienced as a professional and I, I probably would have benefited from, from falling back into a program like that, dropping the chip on my shoulder. Okay, they didn't pick me for – I wasn't able to do that at that point, but they didn't pick me for Sydney for whatever reason. Yes, I was shortchanged, but they don't think I was. There's two ways to deal with this. Suck it up and go after what you want to go or put your finger up to them and go stuff you and get something that you never that you know you want but you're never going to get. I opted for the second which is the only regret I have now because and that's what made me go back in 2012 to try and make London because I, I just wanted to go. I was able to take my kids to London as a, well, I didn't get to race, but we were able to go to London as a, as a, an alternate for the team and experience that whole experience. But I would love to have gone to Olympic games, especially in that period of my life as a legitimate favorite to win, which I would have been in Sydney. And, and I, 
and I think I should have been that in, in Athens. And Hamish, who what finished second to me at World, second to me in, in many races, ended up winning that event. And you know, it's I would have just loved to have posted an Olympic race. That's my biggest regret. And it was just my ego, I guess my youthful, youthful, youthful exuberance, my ego that, that yeah, that kept me out and my desire to do things my way. You know, you can look back and and think, well, it worked and there are some regrets and that's definitely one of them. Yeah. It sounds like it was uh, one of those things where it, it might've, uh, might've cost you there, but I think maybe it led to, to all the success that you ended up having anyway. So it's uh, maybe if you let go, you, you don't become the, the chip on the shoulder competitive beast that, that took you to two world championships and, you know, broke Andreas Raylett on, on, on the last couple of Ks in, in 2010. Who knows? Yeah, without question. And for me, I won my last world. I did that ITU long course world in 2012 for Triathlon Australia. So my last performance for them at their request, I won them a world title, which is fitting for me. I remember being on the phone to, to, uh, to the CEO at the time. And uh, they, they needed that for funding, right? For the next Olympic cycle, they get funded on world championships. So they requested I go to that race. And I said, okay, I'll go. And we ended up winning it. And I remember ringing him saying, oh, well, mate, you know, you shit on me last time and you've shit on me again this time, but uh, at least I got your funding for the next round. So best of luck with it all. But for me, it was, it was nice to, to do that and nice to give back to triathlon Australia. Now, a lot of the stuff we're doing is, I don't know if you know what we're doing, we sponsor a lot of the triathlons now in Australia. I still love Australia. I still love triathlon and I still have a soft spot for Australians dominating in this sport and, 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 and doing good things. So I, I, I felt very good in myself that I was able to win that world title that year to keep the funding around. It was carried on into, into that Rio Rio year. And, and the one big thing for me coming out of that 2012 Olympic cycle was I got to meet the Jake Burt whistles, the, the modern era, the Matt houses, the, and now I run super league. I get to know them, but at that period of time, Aaron Royal, you know, Brendan Sexton, uh, Mitch Robbins, they're all, you know, Ashley gentle. These athletes were all young kids in the high performance program living in Axe Laban in France I was an ancient old man, as old as the, you know, I was older than some of the coaches. <laughs> and, uh, but they became friends and peers. I and mean, it was really nice. And then became really close friends with Alistair Brownlee. And, uh, you know, I would never have probably ventured down that path had I not retired from Ironman in 2010 and, and opted to try and go for London and, and win that, that long course worlds that year and, and then ultimately retire in 2013. Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks Eves, for your time, Maka. It's, it's been awesome. Just, just one last question for me. Um, and it's, I think I'm asking this question because of, of, of everything you've said and, and how maybe your mindset around the sport is a little bit different to, to where the sport is going. So for you, what, what would be one bit of advice you would give to, you know, whether it's an age group or doing, doing an Ironman or, or maybe more fittingly like a, a young professional, you know, stepping up to do 70.3 or Ironman. What's, what's like the one bit of training, training advice you would give them to, to be the best version of themselves? For a young professional, we did a, a camp this year called the Futures Camp. We do as part of my company. We did it in Lausanne, Switzerland. We had Usain Bolt, myself, uh, Johnny Stephenson from Australia, a whole bunch of athletes. And they're taking the top 30 athletes across all different sports in Europe and mentoring them to transition from being juniors or talents, as I said, to champions, which is an elite athlete. And I said, look, the difference between being called a talent and a champion is one thing. And they were like, what, what? You haven't won anything. That's all it means. When you win something, they call you a champion. They call you a talent because you have the 
potential to win. What we're trying to teach is how you become a winner and how you transition. And in that camp, an amazing speech by Usain Bolt, right? And uh, I say this to any young junior out there, right? And, and, all, and Usain Bolt was asked this question on the last night by the athletes. And like Usain, if you could have, if you could talk to yourself as a 16-year-old kid, 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid now, knowing what you've done, what advice would you give that kid? And I was like, wow, great question. You know, and, I, and the advice is saying said, and I believe this whole is get serious now. Right. And and serious, serious means serious in you know, serious means serious with yourself, serious with your goals, serious with your reality checks on yourself, but be vocal about them. I mean, everyone, everyone's gonna tell you what you can't do because that's that's easy. But I never believed anything anyone told me. If I could see it, then I believed it could happen. And, and I say that to everyone. And if you're if you really believe it, you gotta have some talent without question. But hard work will always trump talent with age. I'm telling you. Consistent hard work. So consistent hard work and an unwavering belief that you are not only capable, but worthy of that championship. Because that that, that is the met. The transition is required from junior to elite and to, to get what you want from the lot from, from your sport to put it out there. I wrote a list when I was a kid. I'm going to win this race, this race, this race. And that list lived on my wall until I was in my mid-30s, till I ticked them off. I'm in Hawaii, click, click, click. I won them all. Every race I ever wanted to win, I won. And I think you put it out to the universe. I think you live it. And for me, I it fested in me and I, and I was always serious with it. I never, I never joked about that. I'd have a laugh and a joke and everything, but I never joked about my dreams. If someone wanted to shit on them, I'm like, well, why can't I win? Why are going to be you over me? Well, I'm better than you anyway. And so people used to see that as quite hostile, but because I was very, I believe that's a, an important thing to, to have from, from an age group's perspective, looking at Ironman, don't get obsessed with the numbers, which seems to be a common thread today that everyone's obsessed with their Strava stuff. I get it. It's a fantastic training tool, the word being tool, but consistency is the key. And, and racing, you know, like racing more. People don't race enough anymore. I don't, people are professional trainers. I think, you know, racing across all distances is good because you, you improve your racing IQ and your racing IQ will get you performances that you don't think you're capable of just from training. And i give you one last example before I go, because I know it's gone going on too long. I had a training partner, a friend of mine, an age grouper, good mate of mine, big footballer, came across the triathlon, did 10 Ironmans. All he ever wanted to do was break 10 hours. And I mate, he had trained coaches, trained hard, SRM, everything. New bikes, new everything. I came back to Australia and he was devastated. He just did Ironman Western Australia, 10.03. So he had like eight times, 10.07, 10.03, 10.11. Just wanted anything with a nine in front. And I said to him, mate, he's like, oh, mate, I don't know. I can't train any bloody harder. There's nothing I can do. I just, I'm just going to have to accept 10 hours as me. And I said, mate, I don't buy that bullshit. I said, mate, what was your run strategy for the for the run? He said, oh, I wanted to go out, but I started walking and gave me all this. So I said, yeah, yeah, okay, you're giving me the 40,000 foot. How many times did you walk? So what do you mean? I said, oh, well, how many times did you walk and for how long? He said, oh, I don't know, a couple of K and I did this. So I walked the last part. I said, well, there's the bullshit. When we go to your next race, let's enter another one in the next month and friggin' go into this next race and just put a run plan together and say to yourself, okay, I'm going to run, I'm going to walk eight times in this marathon. Play that game with your head eight times. And not only that, you only walk aid stations. So if you're going to walk, they have to be productive walks. So you walk an aid station and tell yourself, I'm only walking because I need to hydrate. Everything's upbeat, positive, positive. Walk the aid station. The minute that aid station's finished, you run again, mate. 
If you want to walk, run two kilometres to the next one. Walk and take as long as you want. You only got eight of them. He's like, mate, walking eight times, I'm never going to break. I said, dude, there's your strategy. Everything else is the same. He went from Ironman Western Australia. He went to Malaysia, I think. He did 941 in Malaysia, a 19-minute PB on no extra work. In fact, he'd done less work. It was six weeks after the Ironman he'd done, and he only walked five times in the marathon. He said, mate, the whole game of that marathon, all I did was like, actually, I won't walk now. I'll walk the next aid station. I walk. He said, it became a game. I said, exactly. It's got nothing to do with physicality, mate. It's got all to do with how you approach the race and how you deal with problems as they as they happen in the race. So, yeah, that's a pretty simple advice for all the amateurs out there. Just have a... Yeah, have a have a strategy, put goals out there and don't see them as your limits. See them as a goal that you want to surpass because you, we often put a goal and that's the end game. Oh, I can't get there. So it becomes bigger than what it actually is. And Simon's story is one I tell a lot of people. He went 19 minutes quicker than he ever gone before, ever could go. Um, he'd done 10 of them. He'd done Malaysia twice. And uh, for no extra harder, no harder training, no new equipment, nothing except a focus strategy on how to approach the marathon. Awesome. Maka, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, there was just gems all all the way through that. Um, it's a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time. Um, you're a guy I watched a, a lot of when I was a, when I was a young fella and um, and yeah, that that was that was every bit of the conversation I, I, I'd hoped it would be. So yeah, can't thank you enough, mate. Um, really least. appreciate it. Um, loved every second. Oh, thanks for filling in my Quarantine time. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Back to staring at four walls. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Maka. Cheers, Jack.